we are going to be in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, and then Titus 2, 9 through 14. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who his own possessions who are zealous for God's works. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to kind of finish this sentence in your own head. Work is challenging when, when what? You say, my work is challenging. You may mean my, my vocation is challenging when certain things happen, certain people are a certain way. Um, kind of to ask it differently, what are your biggest challenges at work? And again, you can think vocationally, for those of you who have a career, um, you can also just think, again, all the unpaid work that I have to do. Some of my biggest challenges that I face from day to day are these kinds of things. And it was, it was funny, God in his kindness, God in his humor, just kind of brought a lot of what I'm going to be sharing this morning to me because this was a particularly challenging work week. I wish I could say there was something really extraordinary that happened this week that'd be like, you all get it when I share this. And it wasn't like that because I think like so many of you, it is not one big massive obstacle, but it's a bunch of little things that all happen on the same day, in the same week, in the same month, and it just starts piling up. So we had family in town for a wedding, and that was a lot of fun, but there was a lot of distraction, a lot of other stuff going on, working around other people, other events, activities. Um, Marty was back at her college reunion on the East Coast this week, and so like there, there's more to do there. We got this outreach yesterday, which is awesome, but it's just like another layer of stuff. And there were just constant disruptions throughout the week. And so I actually, I had to apologize to a couple of you. And you know this, if this is you, I had to be like, hey, I dropped this ball in communication. I should have shared this thing with you. Um, I didn't. I was not effective in my leadership or in serving you this week in that way. Just missed stuff. Couldn't balance it all. And I would say if, 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 if some of that sounds familiar to you, it's because you, like me, are trying to work in a broken world. And on our best days, we take challenges into the workplace with us. It's not just that they meet us there. 
It's that we have our own baggage, our own things that we're taking in. And, and many of your days at work, many of the activities that you're trying to do at work are disrupted by the same types of things that I just mentioned. As common as these are, you're just like, I am just busy. I have too much on my plate right now. I cannot do it all. I've got to let something drop. I'm going to let someone down. And you feel the weight of that. Or just constant disruptions that, that manifest different kinds of brokenness. Or you're just like, I'm just weary, like physically not able to sleep this week. And then my mind's kind of drained because of that. And your emotions are wrapped up in that. And so we're talking about challenges at work. And uh, I'm going to roll into this, the fact that, that before we let off this series, we sent out a survey, like a church-wide survey at the time. I just kind of asked you, and one of the questions we asked you is, what are some of your challenges at work? And so I'm going to roll some of those in. I'm not going to call you out and say, hey, so-and-so, thanks so much for sharing this. Um, because most of what you shared is actually pretty common to the human experience. What was interesting is I noticed a lot of the challenges that we face in work relate to our expectations. Meaning when you walk into work with the expectation that it's going to be a certain way. And it's not that way a lot of the time. When you have expectations like work is going to do certain things for me emotionally. And it doesn't do those things, you feel a letdown. You feel a frustration. Um, I want to begin with kind of four big categories here this morning. And I think when I'm talking about expectations, our culture, and I mean like a Western, more progressive-leaning culture, expects work to do a whole bunch of things for them. But, but here are four. We expect work to provide things like autonomy, productivity, impact, and progress. And the reality is, some of you even this week, because of a lack of one or more of those four things, and we could talk about many other things, but because of a lack of one or more of those four things, you're frustrated. Some of you mentioned to me like the lack of autonomy. And what you mean by that is some of you are walking into work every week and you're asked to work on problems or tasks or projects or programs and you don't have a corresponding agency or freedom to actually do all that you need to do or to like go purchase, acquire certain things that you need. You're dependent on other people who have that autonomy, who have that freedom, but you're like, I can't influence my own work. I don't have that kind of freedom or that kind of flexibility to do that. And that challenges you. The second word I mentioned was productivity. And maybe you're looking at your work and some of you said this, like my, my work just isn't producing the kinds of results that I'd like to see. Richard talked about this in the second message that very often on our best days, our work feels frustratingly futile. Like I am working against, like Adam and Eve after the curse, I am working against a ground that is working against me. And it is just hard. And I mean, yesterday, um, yesterday I'm like tearing up all this sod in my front yard because there are these frustratingly futile large brown patches that appear. And you're like, what is going on? I'm fertilizing this grass just like everything else. I'm having it mowed and I'm watering it and tear it all out. And you find out like the Japanese beetles have laid their little eggs and those eggs hatch and the grubs come out and the grubs start eating the roots. And you don't see that anything's going on until your grass is all dead and you have to tear it up, kill all these grubs and put down new sod. But 
you experience that sort of thing in a thousand different ways. You're like, I'm taking care of as best I can. And it's just like that grass is not lush and green and beautiful like it should be. Or maybe you're bogged down by like inter-office politics and bureaucracy and red tape that you're like, everyone knows that we should be doing this, yet the layers of stuff to go through to get to something as simple as that is just so frustrating. Or maybe some of you even have a coworker or a boss that you would say, they actively oppose me. Like they know what we need to do and they're just belligerent, like standing in my way. And so there's not this productivity I want. Um, third word I mentioned was the word impact. And some of you mentioned this. You're like, I'm not able to make the kind of impact that I would like to make, not even in my workplace, let alone in my world. You're like, I feel like a cog in the wheel. Like, like I'm just this one little tiny part of this big system where I feel dehumanized. Some of you put it this way. Like, I don't get to see the end result of my work. So I don't even know if I'm doing good work because, you know, like, you're not literally maybe on an assembly line, but you're just part of something where you're like, it comes by me and I put the rivet in every day in that one spot and then it keeps moving and I put the rivet in and like, I don't even know what the car looks like that I'm working on. I wouldn't recognize one on the road. And some of you feel that kind of frustration with like, where's my influence? And um, some of you put it kind of like this, like to, to, to paraphrase Hamilton, it's like, you wanna be in the room where it happens and you're like, but I don't have that kind of influence. I don't have that kind of impact. No one at my work sees me that way, and I'm not included in those kinds of decisions, so I'm not making any kind of impact that I would want to see. You're not proud of your work in a healthy sense of that word. And then I said progress. And the idea of progress is some of you are like, I'm slaving away, and, and things are just kind of flat for me, just generally in life. Like, things are not getting better and better. I can't see a trajectory of, of progress, of improvement. It's just more of the same. Or some of you would even say this, like, I've taken a promotion, or I've switched jobs. I get, I get paid more. I should love this more. But this promotion actually took me away from something that I love doing. Some of you were like, I, I was working with people. This is pretty common in our church. It's like you, you were working directly with people and you love that. And you got this promotion to be over other people who are working with people. But you're just kind of like steering the ship and setting direction for the people. And you're like, actually, I, that's not progress for me. It's a move away from something that I enjoyed. And so here's kind of the one big theme I want to give you this morning. One big idea. Face the challenges of your work. By deeply rooting your soul in the gospel of grace. These texts that Deanna just read for us show us, I think, four very important things. This is pretty general counsel from scripture. But as you face any kind of challenge in your career, in the workplace, in your avocational work, in your parenting, in all that other stuff, here are four things that these texts show us. They show us the right perspective, the right master the right ambition, and the right compensation. So by point one, the right perspective, what I mean here is the, the right perspective is something that now resets our expectations. Because if you continue, and if I continue to go into work with expectations that it's going to be for us, it's going to do for us certain things that it may or may not do, we will constantly be frustrated. But here are two things that these texts say, here's the right perspective. Number one, these texts say, I am a servant. And number two, 
I am an exile. And I'll explain each of those things. But number one, I am a servant. And I wanted you to notice that common thread. And, and maybe even as Deanna read it, it sounded very harsh to your ears that each text started with like slaves. Do this and this and this. Bond servants. You should be like this. And, and we're like, well, we don't, we don't like talking about slavery. But I went to those texts because what I want to show you is, like, especially for many of you who are like, I don't have any agency at work. Well, slaves in the ancient world like literally had no agency. They didn't have freedom. They are, they are bond slaves. Okay, And the word that is used in these texts is the word doulos, bond slave. It's someone who is owned by and does the will of another. So not merely a servant, which a servant is often associated with the work that they do. A slave is associated with the person who owns them. You're not associated with the work that you do per se, because it's just like, oh, you're, you're under the control of so-and-so. So you do whatever it is that they want you to do. And that's the word here. And I think what's so important in these texts is that these followers of Jesus who are writing scripture are not saying, if you're a slave, if you're a servant of someone else, you need to figure out how to get free of that and then your work will have meaning. They're actually saying in the midst of that work, in the midst of your relative bondage, your work can have significance and meaning and purpose and satisfaction in the midst of that. Um, by the way, I want to I pause here for a moment and remind you that when God incarnated himself as a human being, he did not come as a king on his throne. He did not come as like some wealthy business owner or landowner. Philippians 2.7 says, He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And it's that same word, doulos. Jesus himself took the form of a bond slave. Matthew 20, 28 says, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And then he calls others, if you're living an apprenticeship to me, then you think of yourself as a servant of others and you're joyfully engaging in a life of service to others. And I know there's this song of our culture, there's this mantra of our culture that's like, your work has meaning to the degree that other people work for you. And it has less meaning to the degree that you're working for other people. But Jesus himself and scripture is like, no, no, no. Your work can be deeply satisfying as a servant. And if I go into work with the perspective of like work may be hard, work may be futile, work may lack agency and autonomy, and it may lack all these things that normally would make it joyful if I were seeking those things. But I am here to serve God by serving other people then your perspective is changed, okay? I love what John Mark Comer says in his book, Garden City. He says, the striking thing about a servant is that they exist to make others' lives better. And if we can walk into work saying, God, you've shifted my perspective. I'm, I'm really more like a servant here than just an employee or a boss or certain level of this position or, or in my own home. Like, I'm here to serve others, I'm here to serve my family. I'm here to serve my neighbors. And if I can think that way of like, I am a servant. So the crazy thing about that is then your life is about bringing joy and goodness and flourishing to others, even if it's hard. So I am a servant. I said the second part of this perspective is I am an exile. Um, now, we didn't read this text this morning. It's also found in Titus 2. 
Let me read for you 1 Peter 2.11, where Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And he's actually going to go on to talk about servants again. He's going to say, servants, some of you have really good masters. Some of you have really bad masters. And he's like, and it, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you view yourself as a sojourner or an exile. And what he means is, you know, an exilic mindset is kind of like this. You're like, I, I realize I'm somewhere that my identity is not found here, but I'm also not on vacation. So I'm like somewhere longer than vacation, and it's not about my pleasure, but my real home is somewhere else. This is like when the, the Jews are deported by the Babylonians and they're taken, like Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. They're taken to a foreign land and living under a foreign superpower. And he's like, you are exiles, okay? So you are not seeking your identity in this place, but you're actually here representing the values of this other place, which is your real home. Like your citizenship is here, but you're in exile here. So how are you doing at representing this other place? That, that's the idea there. So again, you're, you're walking into work every day. And when he says, I urge you as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And the word passion there is not like we immediate, maybe immediately go to like, sexual passion or lust or something like that. And it's just a word that means over desires, like demands. And he's, he's saying, like, I, I want you to stop and think about how when you walk into the workplace with the over desires and the expectations and the demands that everyone else around you does, that's doing war on your soul. You're not filled with satisfaction. You're not filled with joy. You're not doing the best work for God or others. So... Ask God to change your thinking. And I, and I want to say here, just imagine just those two, and maybe for some of you they're subtle shifts. Maybe for some of you they're cataclysmic shifts because you're like, nope, I'm the boss and I'm here. And I'm finding my identity here. Well, Christ is calling you to walk in and say, I'm a servant here today. And I'm an exile here today. And how would you suddenly not care so much about a lot of things in your work that are not eternally or ultimately significant. And those things would lose their power to frustrate you if you were thinking, I'm here to serve. This isn't about me. I'm here to faithfully represent the place where my true identity is held secure by God. So I'm kind of going in here as an ambassador. I think a lot would change with just that shift of perspective. So that's the right perspective. The right master, um, it's, it's not likely you were, used the word master this week. Probably use the word boss. All of you have a boss, okay? And you may be like, no, I don't, I don't have a boss because I work for myself. Well, if you work for yourself, then you know your clients are your boss if you're treating them well. And, and your own values are your boss. Like they're, they're holding you to a standard where you're like, my real-time actions, what are the, the, the projects I'm signing on to or the projects I'm not signing on to, I'm held by this set of values and principles that are important in how I do my business, okay? What I want to say is, if you look at each of these texts, Scripture recognizes that that person, like most of you that work in a normal workplace, and it's like, you know who you report to, that's your boss. That, that is a master, okay? The, the followers of Jesus here, as they write scripture, they're not, they're not getting smart-alecky and they're like, well, we all know that there's just one boss, so 
No, Ephesians 6, 5, servants obey your earthly masters. Titus 2, 9, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. 1 Peter 2, 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. But I want to look deeper at some of these verses that were read for you this morning. I want you to notice what I emphasize. Yes, you have an earthly master. You work for other people in some sense. But Ephesians 5, or Ephesians 6, 5 through 7, let me read it like this. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free. And it's interesting because he's talking to slaves in large part, bond slaves. But he's saying live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And I want you to hear what the Bible's saying. In the same breath, he can acknowledge, yes, most of you have an earthly master, but that is, your not, that, that is not your final master. That is not your ultimate master because who is that master? Well, it's the God who is in heaven, the God who created you, the God who gave you a certain skill set and called you to certain things. And I want to dive into that just a little bit further and say here are two things in these texts that we're saying Christ is the master of this. First, let Christ be the master of your instructions, okay? You will receive all kinds of instructions at work. You know, it's when you get hired to a new job, it's like everyone's favorite hours of time are the time spent in HR watching those mind-numbing videos of like, here are the instructions. Here are the rules for a safe workplace. And some of you, you've changed jobs enough, you're like, I have these memorized. I don't want to do this time with HR. But there are all these instructions. And your, your boss has rules. Your organization has rules. Again, even if you're self-employed, you have, you have rules, you have structure, you have principles, you have instructions, even for yourself, okay? Here's the point. As you try to do your work, the instructions, the rules, the expectations of others will be a constant source of frustration for you because you didn't get to write the rules. And sometimes even when you get to write the rules, you're later on you're like, why did, I, why did I think that was important at some previous iteration of myself? What I'm saying is even as those instructions frustrate you, make you angry, make you feel like I'm just spinning my wheels, recognize that your ultimate calling in that workplace is to do the will of Christ. You can sit there and say, I, I think certain instructions are unreasonable. I think they're unfair. I think they're just plain stupid. But I'm letting Christ be the master of my instructions. And even as I'm called to submit to things that I think are just dumb, I can do that because of my submission to Christ, recognizing I can still do his will here in this environment in most jobs. And by the way, if you find yourself in a place where you're like, I cannot do the will of God because of the way I'm checked in on, because of certain values of this organization, then that's part of God's kind of little nudge of saying, it's really okay for you. In fact, it would be healthy for you long-term to find something else or to find some other workplace where you can readily submit to my will even as you do day-to-day -day work. So. Let Christ be the master of your instructions. Follow his will. And I think this is an important point that Richard made last week. This means, 
I'm not diving into Scripture. I'm looking for seven verses on work and being like, okay, what's your will for my work? But it's more like I'm reading the whole Bible over and over and over again. So I'm understanding his will for all things. And the, and the more I get to understand him, you ever work with someone for so long, you're just kind of like, I just know, like, I don't even have to talk to certain ones of you to say, I know what you would want in this situation because we, we kind of get a feel for each other, right? And you can just do things that would be pleasing for someone because you've worked with them a lot. Well, we need to immerse ourselves in all of Scripture where it's kind of that way with God, where it's like, I, I, just, I just know God's will. So I can walk into very nuanced and complex, specific situations in work, but knowing the will of God and being able to do that, even while I'm like, but this human rule is frustrating and it's futile and it's unreasonable. Nevertheless, I can do the will of God. So let Christ be the master of your instructions. Also, secondly, let Christ be the master of your validation. Now, you notice here, again, there's this important balance. He's not saying, slaves, don't worry about pleasing your master, your earthly master. He actually says, you should be trying to please your earthly master. So you're not like, well, I, don't, I don't care what they think. But as I've used the, the verbiage of Tim Keller before, I've said, let Christ be your decisive validator. So if you're like, I have this unreasonable boss or these unreasonable coworkers, I can just never please them, then you're kind of looking above that for like, I need the affirmation of God. And if there's only one voice here that can validate and affirm what I'm doing, I want it to be the voice of God. Or to say it another way, if I can only please one party in this situation, I want to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 6, 6 that we read says it this way, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. And it's actually interesting here, Paul makes up a word, as he does several times. So th this word, eye service, is actually, it didn't exist in the Greek language before Paul says, not with eye service. But he takes two other words and he puts them together. And as soon as he puts them together and you understand what it is, you're like, oh, I know the person at my job who's like that. And the eye service thing is like, it's the person who's lazy all the time, but then tries to look really busy when the boss comes around. And all the coworkers are like, please, like, you have literally accomplished nothing like today or this week or this month or this year. But it's all about looking like you're doing a certain thing. And this person is like maybe taking credit for other people's work. They are bragging about their contribution to a project or a timeline or a schedule or something when you're like, but you, okay, you know. But it's the person who's desperate for the praise and affirmation of people. And so it's like they're going around just hyper aware of like, how do I look to everyone? Like, what do you think of me? What do you think of me? What do you think of me? And they're, they're looking and they're wanting people to look at them and say like, man, what a great job. You are awesome. And God says, don't be like that. Don't be like that because you will, you will rarely do good work when you're obsessed with how other people view you. Uh, I'll make reference later to this article by Dorothy Sayers, Why Work? We were talking about it in our gospel community group this past week. And Dorothy Sayers, interestingly enough, says like some of the worst work comes out of like an artist or an author trying to think, what does an audience want to see? 
What, what does an audience want to hear from me? Like, I'm going to please this crowd of invisible people out there by, by giving them something that they want so that then they give me something that I want, which is validation and affirmation. And she's like, you read that writing, you look at that art, and it's just garbage. But when you're like, God, I want to please you in my work. I want your validation. I want you to be the master of affirming me. And I'm listening for your voice, your praise, your commendation. Again, just imagine how work could change if you were free of someone ever needing to come to you. Now, if you're a boss, the flip side of that is you, you should be affirming the people who work for you and around you. You should be encouraging coworkers. But what I'm saying is if you're on the flip side and people are not doing that for you, but you know I've submitted my life to the lordship of Jesus, I've submitted my work to the lordship of Jesus, and I know that I am pleasing him in this thankless job, then you've got something to hang your work on, okay? So the right master. Thirdly, the right ambition. And I let off earlier by saying that, that very often our ambitions, our expectations are a great source of frustration, if we walk into something thinking it's going to be a certain way and it's not that, we're frustrated. We're disappointed. And I want to just contrast here, and, and you can think with me. What are the ambitions of the world as it relates to work? I mean, particularly career. What is the world, what is our culture trying to get out of their work, out of their career? You know, and you could throw stuff out like it's, it's obvious. They're trying to get money. And the, and the more, the better. Very few people take a pay cut to do something more meaningful. Some people do, but a lot of people are just like, well, what is my ambition? To make as much money as possible so I can retire as soon as possible and just live for myself. Some people are using work, and their, their, their main ambition is like a status. Uh, met a couple guys last night at a community event, and they were just kind of talking up their status. And it was, it was even less probably about money than it was about status and how they had climbed to a certain level so they could do certain things. I mentioned autonomy earlier, but certain people are just like, to the degree that you serve other people, you're nothing, but I have an ambition to be autonomous, to have freedom, to have agency, to do what I want to do in this company. I think we could describe all of these things as up and to the right, you know, you, you did all these graphs in school and, and everything, like life, work vocation, career, we think, like, what is progress? What is ambition? It's always up and to the right. We don't want to retreat back down. We don't want to go to the left. We want up and to the right, always up and to the right. And we, we calculate decisions. We calculate relationships. We calculate projects that we take on. And those that were like, I don't want to be a part of that based on, does this get me up and to the right? Okay. Now, can I show you four kind of timeless and universal ambitions that you can pursue from these texts. Number one, make it your ambition to do the will and the purposes of God. Ephesians 6.6 6 says you are to act as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Make it your ambition. God, wh whatever I'm called to do in this job, again, whether it's my, part of my career, whether it's something around the house, something around the yard, just like work on the car, my ambition is to do your will and your purposes with the work of my mind, with the work of my hands. You know, I've often found myself in a role where certain people with authority over me tell me to do one thing and other people with authority over me tell me to do something not just different but something that conflicts, that they're mutually exclusive of each other. And that's very frustrating. Like I've been punished before for doing like a written job description and doing it pretty well. 
Um, I've lost jobs where I was doing my written job description, but there were unwritten expectations. So again, if you're a boss, make sure that if you have unwritten expectations that you're actually going to judge someone on, put them in the job description or talk about it because that's important. But sometimes you're, you're like, man, I was trying to do the will of this person or the will of the team or the will of my company overall and their purposes. And, like, and, and there are all these ways that work can be frustrating. But what I'm saying is you can know the will of God by immersing yourself in the word of God with the help of the spirit of God in the midst of the community of God. You can know the will of God and you can do it. And you can say, it is my ambition that when I succeed at work, when I fail at work, when I let people down, when I rise to the occasion, what am I doing is the will and purposes of God. That's the first ambition. Number two, make it your ambition to adorn the doctrine of God as Savior. This is Titus 2.10. says we're to work in such a way that in everything we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, that's a, that's a weird expression, so let me put it like this. So I have a beautiful wife. I have a beautiful daughter. They're always beautiful. They're beautiful people. But there are times when they'll dress a certain way. They'll do their hair a certain way. They'll do makeup a certain way or have jewelry in a certain way that we would say it adorns that beauty. Okay? So it's not making them beautiful, but it's the idea of it's calling attention to. It's accentuating the beauty that's there. It's drawing other people's attention to the beauty that's already there. And that's the idea of what he says here. Again, in everything, it is our ambition to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Did you know you have a potential to do that with the gospel in your workplace? That you can work in a certain way. And again, even when you have no agency at all, because they're writing to slaves. And he's saying, even as a slave, you have the opportunity to point other people to the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the power and the splendor of the grace of Jesus Christ. And he says, you're not just adorning God, but you're adorning the doctrine, the teaching of God as Savior. I think one of the ways we do that, and this is a negative way to say it, but, but simply going into the workplace every day or taking on jobs and not living for what everyone else is living for and saying, I'm willing to do this just because it's a beautiful thing that pushes back the curse a little bit, that, that fights against some of the decay around this place. And I'm willing to do it because it declares something about the kind of salvation that's coming in Jesus. Okay? So I want you to think, how, how can I work in a way that says to others, Jesus saves, and here's what that salvation looks like. There is a renewal that's coming. Richard talked about this last week. There's a kingdom coming, and in fact, has begun to break in to human history. And we can live and we can work in a certain way that's declaring something about that future kingdom. It's like prophetic. And you're not sitting there quoting verses and being like, the only way to be prophetic at work is to declare verses over you. It's like you can be prophetic in work by saying, God's going to do this thing and I'm living in light of that reality in this workplace. Okay? So make it your ambition to adorn the doctrine of God as Savior. Number three. I know I'm flying. There's a lot here. Make it your ambition to be zealous for good works. Titus 2.14 says Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And friends, in your most challenging circumstances, with no agency at all, in the midst of all these limitations, you can be zealous for good. You can be zealous for good. I said I'd come back to this, but in her letters to the diminished church, 
Dorothy Sayers writes this, the only Christian work is good work well done. And I love that right there because we often think of Christian work as like, that, that's that moment I can slip into my work once every so many months where finally I've gotten a relationship with a coworker to the point where I can invite them to church or just like brag on my church of like, oh, the other day we had this outreach and it was so fun and here, no. And, and again, very often there's a lot of bad art and bad writing because people are trying to make Christian stuff. Like it, it doesn't have to be a, a Christian t-shirt and like a Christian painting and a Christian novel. It just needs to be good work done well. And that's what Christian work looks like. She goes on. The only Christian work is good work done well. Let the church see to it that the workers are Christian people and do their work well as to God. Then all the work will be Christian work, whether it is church embroidery or sewage farming. See, you can be zealous for good work even if the task that you're assigned is like not a pleasant task. And that's what, that's what the apostles are saying here. Make it your ambition to be zealous for good work. Last of these four ambitions, make it your ambition to follow the example of Christ. And I think 1 Peter 2 is especially helpful here because he's like, I'm writing to many of you and you're slaves. And some of you have really, really bad masters. And you could do everything I'm describing here and you will suffer unjustly, unfairly. You will not be rewarded and compensated for your work. But he's like, but God sees and you have an, you have an opportunity to identify with the sufferings of Christ in your work. So that, that's specifically what I'm saying is follow the example of Christ in how he responded to unfairness, injustice. Like he very often stuck up for other people. He, he was not so interested in just like having to fight for himself and his rights and his comfort and all of that. Okay. So make it your ambition to follow the example of Christ. And again, don't go look for the verse that talks about the example of Christ read about the life of Christ, study the life of Christ, meditate on the life of Christ, so that in a thousand kind of subconscious ways, you begin to imitate Christ, and you're just following an example, and it starts to become more and more natural as his spirit lives in you, and you follow him in faith, and you're repenting and, and trusting him, just more and more you're able to follow the example of Christ. All right, let me just kind of put those together real quick and just illustrate. So I want to, I want to tell you about my worst jobs ever and how this kind of thinking was transformative in those. Um, one of my first worst jobs ever was, uh, it was like junior high or high school. It must have been high school because I had a driver's license. I worked for a construction company in upstate South Carolina where it's like 100 degrees and 100% humidity all summer long. And, uh, and, and my boss called me and another group of guys that worked with me, we were called grunts. So she, she literally, and this is before we all had cell phones, she had a walkie-talkie and she'd be like, I mean, you could hear her. She'd be like, I need four grunts over at such and so address to do X, Y, Z thing. And so you just kind of go, you like go clean up other people's nails and sawdust and just whatever they asked you to do. It was, it was all the worst jobs that like you got no glory for at all, but it was all important stuff. Well, the, the worst of those jobs one day is she was literally like this house this, that was under construction backed up to a very large wooded area. And she was like, uh, we want you to go clear out all the underbrush and make a pile and burn it. 
So like we get back in there, we encounter South Carolina's favorite noxious weed, which is poison ivy, just everywhere back in there. And she was like, oh, pull that out, make a big pile and burn it. And we knew something from like a chemistry class or something of like, you don't, you actually don't burn poison ivy. Because if you do, some of the oils in poison ivy get in the smoke and you can breathe that and you actually get poison ivy of the lung, like inside you. So imagine that itchy, flaky, like open sores on your skin, that would get inside you. My point of telling that story is like when, when the perspective shifted of like, hey, God has given in his graciousness like a tiny bit of wisdom here, a tiny bit of knowledge. So we put it in big black trash bags and threw it all away instead of burning it. And, and to step back and be able to say, hey, we made an area back there, which the owner didn't even care, but we made it more beautiful. We restored the beauty of an area and we did it safely. That honors God. Um, we had another job where this guy had imported all this brick from a house in Charleston, South Carolina, right on the coast that was actually made out of brick that was made in England in like the 1500s or something, he said. And it was part of an old structure in Britain. Then they tore that building down. He bought all the, somebody bought all the brick. It was shipped to Charleston, South Carolina on a boat. They made an old house there. And then he was like, when that house is demolished, I want all that brick. And it was put together with seashell mortar and we literally spent like days or weeks out in the front yard of this house with sharp instruments like scraping and chipping all of the seashell mortar off of this uh, like massive pile of like thousands and thousands and thousands of bricks, whatever it takes to brick a 10,000 square foot house. And I was actually telling somebody about this house the other day and we tried to look it up on like uh, Google Street View or something because it's like, we did that. Where like there was a recycling of valuable materials and uh, the creation of something beautiful and durable for this family to live in. And this was, whatever, more than like 30 years ago. One more that I've shared before, but like my, my, my awesome job out of college, I worked for all these degrees, giga grades, and I got this job in a mattress factory. So what I got to do all day long, try not to be jealous, but I would take these big rolls of different types of fabric and put them on some kind of like loom thing. And I would walk along this big long table and like roll it out and then like pen it at this end and then walk back. And so I'm like spreading layers and layers and layers of fabric. And then I took these huge templates and drew it on there with like a crayon and then took like what looks like a giant jigsaw and cut them out and then walked it over to the ladies who had the sewing machines who would like sew the top to the bottom and, and do this. And, and it was exasperating. I'm like, I, I did not go to college for this and it doesn't even pay that well, but at least Friday's okay because it was a four tens and Fridays I got paid time and a half. So that was kind of cool. But then I realized these, these mattresses are, they're medical mattresses. And we put these air chambers in them that as you inflate different air chambers, and those of you in the medical community, you can kind of picture this. Um, it would help like one tiny nurse could inflate different air chambers and roll a patient over in bed. And, and they're there to prevent bed sores. And I looked up a picture of bed sores and I was like, oh, like literally, oh, my work is contributing to something that helps prevent people from ever having something that looks like that and does that to their bodies. So th there's a healing aspect, there's a health, there's a flourishing aspect. And as you begin to see like even in the, the meaningless, monotonous, futile, this is not what I went to work for kind of stuff, if you can see through it, if you can see through the what to kind of the why, 
or like how does this connect to God's bigger purposes, then something that's very dissatisfying, very frustrating, can suddenly become very satisfying, okay? So I'm almost done. Then I said, the last point is the right compensation. If, to the degree that you work for the compensation you get here, I think we become very selfish in our work because it's like people need to notice that we get compensated fairly for what we're doing. And what he says here in this text, Ephesians 6, 8, he says, I, I want you to know that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And this is spoken to followers of Jesus, but, but if the Son of God has already come to this earth and he's lived the life you should have lived and he's died a sacrificial death, paying for your sin, and he's like, I'm bringing you home to heaven, and that's sheer grace. And, and, and I fear sometimes, like, we are so... We are so reflective on God's grace all the time that we can miss the fact that there's actually reward and compensation for living a certain kind of life that pleases God. And what he's saying is when you get home someday, you may think no one even noticed when I did this good thing and this good thing and I sacrificed here and I was gracious here and I was kind and those people never said thank you. And friends, what I want you to hear God saying is you didn't think anyone noticed, I noticed. I am grateful. I will compensate you, like eternally. Like, like not just with grace, as important as it is, but, but I, like this is God saying, I want to commend you and say thank you. So I want you, as you go to work day to day and you're like, no one noticed, like just keep doing the right thing in faith because God is sitting there and it's not like a tally sheet of like, oh, that was another good thing. Oh, that's another, I, like I don't know how he does it. I know it's going to be better than you and I can ever imagine, Okay. That's the right compensation is to work for that eternal one. Um, let me just conclude with this. One of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. as it relates to work. And I think this kind of wraps all of this up about like just, just doing Christian work, good work, doing it well. He says, if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Handel and Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. <laughs>